20. The start consumes the greater part of a day, as it is best to have nothing done carelessly at the outset. The heavy baggage is loaded upon the camels, the animals lying down and patiently waiting while their cargoes are stored. Pieces of felt cloth are packed between and around their humps, to prevent injury from the cords that sustain the bundles. The drivers display much ingenuity in arranging the loads so that they shall be easily balanced, and the sides of the beasts as little injured as possible. Spite of precautions, the camels get ugly sores in their sides and backs, which grow steadily worse by use. Occasionally their hoofs crack and fill with sand, and when this occurs, their owner has no alternative but to rest them a month or two, or risk losing their services altogether. The principal travel over the desert is in the cold season. In the autumn, the camels are fat, and their humps appear round and hard. They are then steadily worked until spring, and very often get very little to eat. As the camel grows thin, his humps fall to one side, and the animal assumes a woebegone appearance. In the spring, his hair falls off, his naked skin wrinkles like a wet glove, and he becomes anything but an attractive object. As a beast of burden, the camel is better than for purposes of draft. He can carry from 600 to 800 pounds, if the load be properly placed on his back, but when he draws a cart the weight must be greatly diminished. In crossing Mongolia, heavy baggage is carried on camels, but every traveler takes a cart for riding purposes and alternates between it and his saddle horse. The cart is a sort of dog house on two wheels, its frame is of wood, and has a covering of felt cloth, thick enough to ward off a light fall of rain, and embarrass a heavy one. It is barely high enough to allow a man to sit erect, but not sufficiently long to enable him to lie at full length. The body rests directly upon the axle, so that the passenger gets the full benefit of every jolt. The camel walks between the shafts and his great body is the chief feature of the scenery when one looks ahead. The harness gives way occasionally, and allows the shafts to fall to the ground. When this happens, the occupant runs the risk of being dumped among the ungainly feet that propel his vehicle. One experience of this kind is more than satisfactory. After passing a range of low mountains north of Kalgan, the road enters the tableland of Mongolia, elevated about 5,000 feet above the sea. The country opens into a series of plains and gentle swells, not unlike the rolling prairies of Kansas and Nebraska, with here and there a stretch of hills. Very often not a single tree is visible, and the only stationary objects that break the monotony of the scene are occasional yurts, or tents of the natives. All the way along the road there are numerous trains of ox carts, and sometimes they form a continuous line of a mile or more. Those going southward are principally laden with logs of wood from the valley of the Tola about 200 miles from the Siberian frontier. The logs are about 6 or 7 feet long, and their principal use is to be cut into Chinese coffins. Many a gentleman of Pekin has been stored in a coffin whose wood grew in the middle of Mongolia, and possibly when our relations with the empire become more intimate, we shall supply the Chinese coffin market from the fine forests of our Pacific coast. Chapter XXXII North of Kalgan the native habitations are scattered irregularly over the country wherever good water and grass abound. The Mongols are generally nomadic, and consult the interest of their flocks and herds in their movements. In summer they resort to the tableland, and stay wherever fancy or convenience dictates. In winter they prefer the valleys where they are partially sheltered from the sharp winds, and find forage for their stock. The desert is not altogether a desert, it has a great deal of sand and general desolation to the day's ride. 
but is far from being a forsaken region where a wolf could not make a living, antelopes abound, and are often seen in large droves as upon our western plains, grouse will afford frequent breakfasts to the traveler if he takes the trouble to shoot them, there are wild geese, ducks, and curlew in the ponds and marshes, and taken for all in all, the country might be much worse than it is which is bad enough, the flat or undulating country island of course, monotonous, Sunset and sunrise are not altogether unlike those events on the ocean, and if a traveler wishes to feel himself quite at sea, he has only to wander off and lose his camp or caravan. The natives make nothing of straying out of sight, and seem to possess the instincts which have been often noted in the American Indian, without landmarks or other objects to guide them. They rarely mistake their position, even at night, and can estimate the extent of a day's journey with surprising accuracy. Where a stranger can see no difference between one square mile of desert and a thousand others, the Mongol can distinguish it from all the rest, though he may not be able to explain why. Perception is closely allied to instinct, and as fast as we are developed and educated the more we trust to acquired knowledge and the less to the unaided senses. Of course it is quite easy for a stranger to be lost in the Mongolian desert beyond all hope of finding his way again, unless someone comes to his aid. A Russian gentleman told me his experience in getting lost there several years ago. I used, said he, to have a fondness for pursuing game whenever we sighted any, which was pretty often, and as I had a couple of hardy ponies, I did a great deal of chasing. One afternoon I saw a fine drove of antelopes, and set out in pursuit of them. The chase led me further than I expected, the game was shy, and I could not get near enough for a good shot, after a long pursuit I gave up and concluded to return to the road, just as I abandoned the chase the sun was setting, my notion of the direction I ought to go was not entirely clear, as I had followed a very tortuous course in pursuing the antelopes, I was not altogether certain which way I turned when I left the road, it was my impression that I went to the eastward and had been moving away from the sun, so I turned my pony's head in a westerly direction and followed the ridges, which ran from east to west, Hour after hour passed away, the stars came out clear and distinct in the sky, and marked off the progress of the night as they slowly moved from east to west. I grew hungry, and thirsty, and longed most earnestly to reach the caravan. My pony shared my uneasiness, and moved impatiently, now endeavoring to go in one direction and now in another, thinking it possible that he might know the proper route better than I I gave him free rein but soon found he was as much at fault as myself. Then I fully realized I was lost in the desert, without compass or landmark to guide me. There was no use in further attempts to find the caravan. Following the Mongol custom, I carried a long rope attached to my saddle bow, and with this I managed to picket the pony where he could graze and satisfy his hunger. How I envied his ability to eat the grass, which, though scanty, was quite sufficient. I tried to sleep but sleeping was no easy matter. First, I had the consciousness of being lost. Then I was suffering from hunger and thirst. And the night, like all the nights in Mongolia, even in midsummer, was decidedly chilly. And as I had only my ordinary clothing, the cold caused me to shiver violently. The few snatches of sleep I caught were troubled with many dreams. None of them pleasant. All sorts of horrible fancies passed through my brain and I verily believe that though I did not sleep half an hour in the whole night, the incidents of my dreams were enough for a thousand years. Thoughts of being devoured by wild beasts haunted me, 
Though in truth I had little of this fate to fear, the only carnivorous beasts on the desert are wolves, but as game is abundant, and can be caught with ordinary exertion, they have no occasion to feed upon men. About midnight my fears were aroused by my pony taking alarm at the approach of some wild beast. He snorted and pulled at his rope, and had it not been for my efforts to soothe him, he would have broken away and fled. I saw nothing and heard nothing, though I fancied I could discover half a dozen dark forms on the horizon, and hear a subdued howl from an animal I supposed to be a wolf. Morning came. I was suffering from hunger, and more from thirst. My throat was parched. My tongue was swollen, and there was a choking sensation as if I were undergoing strangulation. How I longed for water. Mounting my horse, I rode slowly along the ridge toward the west, and after proceeding several miles, discovered a small lake to my right. My horse scented it earlier than I and needed no urging to reach it. Dismounting, I bent over and drank from the edge, which was marked with the tracks of antelopes, and of numerous aquatic birds. The water was brackish and bitter, but I drank it with eagerness. My thirst was satisfied, but the water gave me a severe pain in my stomach, that soon became almost as unendurable as the previous dryness. I stood for some minutes on the shore of the lake, and preparing to remount my horse, the bridle slipped from my hand. Mongol ponies are generally treacherous, and mine proved no exception to the rule. Finding himself free, he darted off and trotted back the way we had come. I know that search would be made for me, and my hope now lay in someone coming to the lake. It did not require long deliberation to determine me to remain in the vicinity of the water. As long as I was near it I could not perish of thirst, and moreover, the Mongols, who probably knew of the lake, might be attracted here for water, and, if looking for me, would be likely to take the lake in the way. Tying my kerchief to my ramrod, which I fixed in the ground, I lay down on the grass and slept, as near as I could estimate, for more than two hours, seeing some waterfowl a short distance away. I walked in their direction, and luckily found a nest among the reeds, close to the water's edge. The six or eight eggs it contained were valuable prizes, one I swallowed raw, and the others I carried to where I left my gun. Gathering some of the dry grass and reeds, I built a fire and roasted the eggs, which gave me a hearty meal. The worst of my hardships seemed over. I had found water bad water. It is true but still it was possible to drink it. By searching among the reeds I could find an abundance of eggs. My gun could procure me game. And the reeds made a passable sort of fuel. I should be discovered in a few days at farthest. And I renewed my determination to remain near the lake. The day passed without any incident to vary the monotony. Refreshed by my meal and by a draft from a small pool of comparatively pure water. I was able to sleep most of the afternoon, so as to keep awake during the night. One exercise was necessary to warmth. About sunset a drove of antelopes came near me, and by shooting one I added venison to my bill of fare. In the night I amused myself with keeping my fire alive, and listening to the noise of the birds that the unusual sight threw into a state of alarm. On the following morning, as I lay on my bed of reeds, a dozen antelopes, attracted by my kerchief fluttering in the wind, stood watching me, and every few minutes approaching a few steps, they were within easy shooting distance, but I had no occasion to kill them, so I lay perfectly still, watching their motions and admiring their beauty, all at once, though I had not moved a muscle, they turned and ran away, while I was wondering what could have disturbed them I heard the shout of two Mongol horsemen, 
who were riding toward me, and leading my pony they had caught a dozen miles away. A score of men from the caravan had been in search of me since the morning after my disappearance, and had ridden many a mile over the desert. The Mongols are a strong, hardy, and generally good-natured race, possessing the spirit of perseverance quite as much as the Chinese. They have the free manners of all nomadic people, and are noted for unvarying hospitality to visitors. Every stranger is welcome, and has the best the host can give, the more he swallows of what is offered him, the better will be pleased the household, as the native habits are not especially cleanly. A fastidiously inclined guest has a trying time of it. The staple dish of the Mongol year is boiled mutton, but it is unaccompanied with capers or any other kind of sauce or seasoning. A sheep goes to pot immediately on being killed, and the quantity that each man will consume is something surprising. When the meat is cooked it is lifted out of the hot water and handed, all dripping and steamy, to the guests. Each man takes a large lump on his lap, or any convenient support, and then cuts off little chunks which he tosses into his mouth as if it were a mill hopper. The best piece is reserved for the guest of honor, who is expected to divide it with the rest, after the meat is devoured they drink the broth, and this concludes the meal. Knives and cups are the only aids to eating and as every man carries his own outfit, the Mongol dinner service is speedily arranged. The entire work consists in seating the party around a pot of cooked meat. The desert is crossed by various ridges and small mountain chains, that increase in frequency and make the country more broken as one approaches the Tola, the largest stream between Pekin and Kyotka. The road, after traversing the last of these chains, suddenly reveals a wide valley which bears evidence of fertility in its dense forests and the straggling fields which receive less attention than they deserve. The Tola has an ugly habit of rising suddenly and falling deliberately. When at its height, the stream has a current of about seven miles an hour, and at the fording place the water is over the back of an ordinary pony. The bottom of the river consists of large boulders of all sizes from an egg up to a cotton bale, and the footing for both horses and camels is not specially secure. The camels need a good deal of persuasion with clubs before they will enter the water, they have an instinctive dread of that liquid and avoid it whenever they can. Horses are less timorous, and the best way to get a camel through the fort is to lead him behind a horse and pound him vigorously at the same time. When the river is at all dangerous there is always a swarm of natives around the fort ready to lend a hand if suitably compensated. They all talk very much and in loud tones, their voices mingle with the neighing of horses the screams of camels, the roaring of the river, and the laughter of the idlers when any mishap occurs. The confused noises are in harmony with the scene on either bank, where baggage is piled promiscuously, and the natives are grouped together in various picturesque attitudes, men with their lower garments rolled as high as possible, or altogether discarded, walk about in perfect nonchalance, their cues hanging down their backs seem designed as rollers to steer the wearers across the stream. About two miles from the fort of the Tola there is a Chinese settlement, which forms a sort of suburb to the Mongol town of Urgot. The Mongols have no great friendship for the Chinese inhabitants, who are principally engaged in traffic and the various occupations connected with the transport of goods. Between this suburb and the main town the Russians have a large house, which is the residence of a consul and some twenty or thirty retainers. The policy of maintaining a consulate there can only be explained on the supposition that Russia expects and intends to appropriate a large slice of Mongolia whenever opportunity offers. She has long insisted that the chain of mountains south of Urgot was the natural boundary, 
and her establishment of an expensive post at that city enables her to have things ready whenever a change occurs. In the spirit of annexation and extension of territory the Russians can fairly claim equal rank with ourselves. I forget their phrase for, manifest destiny, and possibly they may not be willing that I should give it. Urga is not laid out in streets like most of the Chinese towns, its byways and highways are narrow and crooked, and form a network very puzzling to a stranger. The Chinese and Russian settlers live in houses, and there are temples and other permanent buildings, but the Mongols live generally in yurts, which they prefer to more extensive structures. Most of the Mongol traffic is conducted in a large esplanade, where you can purchase anything the country affords, and at very fair prices. The principal feature of Urga is the Lamasari or convent where a great many Lamas or holy men reside. I have heard the number estimated at 15,000, but cannot say if it be more or less. The religion of the Mongols came originally from Tibet, by direct authority of the Grand Lama, but a train of circumstances which I have not space to explain, has made it virtually independent. The Chinese government maintains shrewd emissaries among these Lamas, and thus manages to control the Mongols and prevent their setting up for themselves. As a further precaution it has a lamasari at Peking, where it keeps 2,000 Mongol Lamas at its own expense. In this way it is able to influence the nomads of the desert, and in case of trouble it would possess a fair number of hostages for an emergency. About the year 1205 the great battle between Timujin and the sovereign then occupying the Mongol throne was fought a short distance from Urgot. The victory was decisive for the former who thus became Genghis Khan and commenced that career of conquest which made his name famous. Great numbers of devotees from all parts of Mongolia visit Urgot every year, the journey there having something of the sacred character which a Mohammedan attaches to a pilgrimage to Mecca. The people living at Urgot build fences around their dwellings to protect their property from the thieves who are in large proportion among the pious travelers. From Urgot to the Siberian frontier the distance is less than 200 miles, the Russian couriers accomplish it in 50 or 60 hours when not delayed by accidents. But the caravans require from 4 to 8 days. There is a system of relays arranged by the Chinese so that one can travel very speedily if he has proper authority. Couriers have passed from Kyoto to Peking in 10 or 12 days, but the rough road and abominable carts make them feel at their journey's end about as if rolled through a patent clothes ringer. A mail is carried twice a month each way by the Russians. Several schemes have been proposed for a trans-Mongolian telegraph, but thus far the Chinese government has refused to permit its construction. The desert proper is finished before one reaches the mountains bordering the Tola, after crossing that stream and leaving a gutter road passes through a hilly country, sprinkled, it is true, with a good many patches of sand, but having plenty of forest and frequently showing fertile valleys. These valleys are the favorite resorts of the Mongol shepherds and herdsmen some of whom count their wealth by many thousand animals. In general, Mongolia is not agricultural, both from the character of the country and the disposition of the people. A few tribes in the West live by tilling the soil in connection with stock raising, but I do not suppose they take kindly to the former occupation. The Mongols engaged in the caravan service pass a large part of their lives on the road, and are merry as larks over their employment. They seem quite analogous to the teamsters and miscellaneous plainsmen who used to play an important part on our overland route. A large proportion of the men engaged in this transit service are llamas, their sacred character not excusing them, as many suppose, from all kinds of employment. Many llamas are indolent and manage in some way to make a living without work. 
but this is by no means the universal character of the holy men. About one-fifth of the male population belong to the religious order, so that there are comparatively few families which do not have a member or a relative in the pale of the church, if not domiciled in a convent or blessed by fortune in some way. The Lama turns his hand to labor, though he is able at the same time to pick up occasional presents for professional service. Many of them act as teachers or schoolmasters. Theoretically he cannot marry any more than a Romish priest, but his vows of celibacy are not always strictly kept. One inconvenience under which he labors is in never daring to kill anything through fear that what he slaughters may contain the soul of a relative, and possibly that of the divine Buddha. A lama will purchase a sheep on which he expects to dine, and though fully accessory before and after the fact, he does not feel authorized to use the knife with his own hand, even should he be annoyed by fleas or similar creeping things if it were a township or city the lama's body could return a flattering census, he must bear the infliction until patience is thoroughly exhausted, at such times he may call an insanctified friend and subject himself and garments to a thorough examination. Every lama carries with him a quantity of written prayers, which he reads or recites, and the oftener they are repeated the greater is their supposed efficacy. Quantity is more important than quality, and to facilitate matters they frequently have a machine, which consists of a wheel containing a lot of prayers. Sometimes it is turned by hand and sometimes attached to a wine mill, the latter mode being preferred. Abbe Hugh and others have remarked a striking similarity between the Buddhist and Roman Catholic forms of worship and the origin of the two religions. Hugh infers that Buddhism was borrowed from Christianity, on the other hand, many lamas declare that the reverse is the case. The question has caused a great deal of discussion first and last, but neither party appears disposed to yield. The final stretch of road toward the Siberian frontier is across a sandy plain, six or eight miles wide. On emerging from the hills at its southern edge the dome of the church in Kyotka appears in sight, and announces the end of Mongolian travel. No lighthouse is more welcome to a mariner than is the view of this Russian town to a traveler who has suffered the hardships of a journey from Pekin. Chapter XXXII The week I remained at Kyotka was a time of festivity from beginning to end. I endeavored to write out my journal but was able to make little more than rough notes. The good people would have been excusable had they not compelled me to drink so much excellent champagne. The amiable merchants of Kyotka are blessed with such capacities for food and drink that they do not think a guest satisfied until he has swallowed enough to float a steamboat. I found an excellent companion du voyage, and our departure was fixed for the evening after the dinner with Mr. Fatfires. A change from dinner dress to traveling costume was speedily made and I was got over when my friend arrived with several officers to see us off. About eight o'clock we took places in my tarantess, and drove out of the northern gate of Troitskozovsk. My traveling companion was Mr. Richard Mock, superintendent of public instruction in eastern Siberia. He was just finishing a tour among the schools in the Transbaikal province, and during fourteen years of Siberian life, he had seen a variety of service. He accompanied General Moravi foiled the first expedition down the Anor, and wrote a detailed account of his journey. Subsequently he explored the Usuri in the interest of the Russian Geographical Society. He said that his most arduous service was in a winter journey to the valley of the Lena, and along the shores of the Arctic Ocean. The temperature averaged lower than in Drive Kane's hibernation on the coast of Greenland, and once remained at 60 degrees for nearly three weeks. Of five persons comprising the party, Mock is the only survivor. 
one of his companions fell dead in General Moravit's parlor while giving his account of the exploration. We determined to be comfortable on the way to Irkutsk. We put our baggage in a Tilyada with Mock's servant and took the Tarantas to ourselves. The road was the same I traveled from Verkhnyudinsk to Kyotkov, crossing the Selenga at Selenyansk. We slept most of the first night, and timed our arrival at Selenyansk so as to find the school in session. During a brief halt while the Smotrial prepared our breakfast, Mott visited the schoolmaster at his post of duty. Over the hills behind a lake about a day's ride from Selenyansk there is a Buryat village of a sacred character. It is the seat of a large temple or lamasari once all the Buryats in Siberia receive their religious teachings. A grand lama specially commissioned by the great chief of the Buddhist faith at Thibet, presides over the lamasari. He is supposed to partake of the immortal essence of Buddha, and when his body dies, his spirit enters a younger person who becomes the lama after passing a certain ordeal. The village is wholly devoted to religious purposes, and occupied exclusively by Buryats. I was anxious to visit it. But circumstances did not favor my desires. We made both crossings of the Selenga on the ice without difficulty. It was only a single day from the time the ferry ceased running until the ice was safe for teams. We reached Verkhnyudinsk late in the evening, and drove to a house where my companion had friends. The good lady brought some excellent nalifka of her own preparation, and the more we praised it the more she urged us to drink. What with tea, nalifka, and a variety of solid food. We were pretty well filled during a halt of two hours. It was toward midnight when we emerged from the house to continue our journey. Mock found his tarantas at Berkmiudinsk, and as it was larger and better than mine we assigned the latter to Evan and the baggage, and took the best to ourselves. Evan was a Yakut whom my friend brought from the Lena country. He was intelligent and active, and assisted greatly to soften the asperities of the route. With my few words of Russian, and his quick comprehension, we understood each other very well. During the first few hours from Verkhnyudinsk the sky was obscured and the air warm. My furs were designed for cold weather, and their weight in the temperature then prevailing threw me into perspiration. In my dihar I was unpleasantly warm, and without it I shivered. I kept alternately opening and closing the garment, and obtained very little sleep up to our arrival at the first station. While we were changing horses the clouds blew away and the temperature fell several degrees. Under the influence of the cold I fell into a sound sleep, and did not heed the rough, greater-like surface of the recently frozen road. From Verkhnyudinsk to Lake Baikal, the road follows the Selenka Valley, which gradually widens as one descends it. The land appears fertile and well adapted to farming purposes but only a small portion is under cultivation. The inhabitants are pretty well rewarded for their labor if I may judge by the appearance of their farms and villages, until reaching Ilyansk, I found the cliffs and mountains extending quite near the river. In some places the road is cut into the rocks in such a way as to afford excitement to a nervous traveler. The villages were numerous and had an air of prosperity. Here and there new houses were going up, and made quite a contrast to the old and decaying habitations near them. My attention was drawn to the well sweeps exactly resembling those in the rural districts of New England. From the size of the sweeps, I concluded the wells were deep. The soil in the fields had a loose, friable appearance that reminded me of the farming lands around Cleveland, Ohio. One of the villages where we changed horses is called Kobansk from the Russian word Koban wild boar. This animal abounds in the vicinity and is occasionally hunted for sport. The chase of the wild boar is said to be nearly as dangerous as that of the bear. 
the brute frequently turning upon his pursuer and making a determined fight. We passed the monastery of Troitska founded in 1681 for the conversion of the Buryats. It is an imposing edifice built like a Russian church in the middle of a large area surrounded by a high wall. Though it must have impressed the natives by its architectural effects it was powerless to change their faith. As it approaches Lake Baikal the Selenka divides into several branches, and encloses a large and very fertile delta. The afternoon following our departure from Verkhneudinsk, we came in sight of the lake, and looked over the blue surface of the largest body of fresh water in northern Asia. The mountains on the western shore appeared about 8 or 10 miles away, though they were really more than 30. We skirted the shore of the lake, turning our horses' heads to the southward. The clear water reminded me of Lake Michigan as one sees it on approaching Chicago by railway from the east. Its waves broke gently on a pebbly beach, where the cold of commencing winter had changed much of the spray to ice. There was no steamer waiting at Posolsky, but we were told that one was hourly expected. Mop was radiant at finding a letter from his wife awaiting him at the station. I inquired for letters but did not obtain any, and like my companion, I had no wife at Irkutsk. The steamboat landing is nine versts below the town, and as the post route ended at Posolsky, we were obliged to engage horses at a high rate, to take us to the port. The alternate freezing and thawing of the road its last act was to freeze had rendered it something like the rough way in a son of Malta Lodge. The agent assured us the steamer would arrive during the night. Was there ever a steamboat agent who did not promise more than his employers performed? According to the tourists' phrase the port of Posolsky can be done in about five minutes. The entire settlement comprised two buildings, one a hotel, and the other a storehouse and stable. A large quantity of merchandise was piled in the open air, and awaited removal. It included tea from Kyotka, and vodka or native whiskey from Irkutsk. There are several distilleries in the Transbaikal province, but they are unable to meet the demand in the country east of the lake. From what I saw in transit to the consumption must be enormous. The government has a tax on vodka equal to about 50 cents a gallon, which is paid by the manufacturers. The law is very strict, and the penalties are so great that I was told no one dared attempt an evasion of the excise duties, except by bribing the collector. The hotel was full of people waiting for the boat, and the accommodations were quite limited. We thought the tarantus.